Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see you all here. Um, We're continuing in our series on marriage this morning. Uh, Some of you may have been here this weekend for the marriage seminar. This will dovetail real nicely um, with what was there. If not, uh, we're glad that you're here this morning, and we're going to be continuing in this series. So um, the the title for this morning's message is Your Best Marriage Now. and uh, it's a bit of a parody. Uh, some of you may be familiar with a famous book that came out not so long ago called Your Best Life Now. And the, the point that I'm trying to capture is that, um, you know, we, we live in a microwave generation. We want the best of everything right away. So we want the best marriage where there's, um, you know, like unending laughter and joy. Um, there's never a conflict, uh, constant kindness, and without much work, really. We'd like it right now, actually, if possible. Um, but... The fact of the matter is that's just not the way that marriage works. That's not the way that any relationship works, really. Um, and uh, the, the, the funny thing is that the barrier to your best marriage now is ultimately you. It's each one of us. Um, it's, it's yourself. Um, if only you didn't like, have to get that last word. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the last word in the conversation. Be the one who ends it. If only you didn't have to... Uh, uh, you know, s- s- say that comment in the tense conversation that sparks the rest of the fight. Um, it, it, the problem is not outside of us, it's inside of us, the, the, the barrier to, to your best marriage now. Um, and uh, we live in a time where that's more evident than, than ever before, right? You, probably many of you are familiar with the statistics. If you haven't been touched by divorce yourself, um, something like 50% of the marriages in the U.S. end in divorce nowadays, um, and many of us have been, uh, either the children of divorce or uh, have uh, been involved in a divorce even, um, and that's, that's very painful. I realize that. Um, but we're going to look at this passage today uh, because that was the exact same culture that the Apostle Paul was writing to. He was writing to a culture where marriage marriages uh, were on the rocks. The, the people were, were hurting, and there was constant pain about this sort of thing. Um, you know, it's important to point out that none of us have seen a perfect marriage because there is no such thing, but that doesn't mean that we can't seek for our best marriage now. So in some sense, I, I do mean that title. We, we should seek for the best possible, and that's what we're going for here, and I think it's attainable. Um, consider this fact, uh, you know, th- like the early Christians shortly after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and then ascended into heaven, they were this group of um, essentially like uh, 
Palestinian hicks, if you will. They were the rednecks uh, of Palestine. And in three centuries, they went from this kind of group of outcasts and weirdos to the dominant cultural force in the Roman Empire. and, And one of the main reasons for that was because they had joyful marriages. They had marriages that made the people around them look and say, what's going on there? So hear me, I'm not a, a cultural crusader. I'm not you know, up here saying like, if we can just get back to traditional values, everything will be all right. That's not at all my message. And I don't think that's the apostle Paul's message here either. But I do think it's applicable to us um, in a similar sense because the marriages of the early Christians did overturn the empire. There's a, a famous uh, letter from an early Christian writing to a non-Christian explaining why Christianity was so uh, popular, and he said, he said, these Christians share their table with everyone, but their marriage bed with no one. They were well known for being hospitable, joyful people, and yet they were faithful to their, to their spouses. And it, it shocked the empire so much so that they went from, like I said, kind of these outcasts, the weirdos, to uh, the people who were then actually their, their, their religion became not just the legal religion, but the uh, official religion of the empire in just three, three centuries. And I think the power for marriages like that is available to us. Um, the power is in the gospel. Um, it's in Jesus Christ. And, and, and what we're going to look at today uh, is, is, is aiming at that in our lives. If you're not married, um, I hope that you can learn from this. I, I know that you can learn from this. There are principles here that are valuable for the relationships you're in now, but also, um, if you learn these lessons now, you will save yourself a lot of heartache in the future. Um, some of you may be divorced. I understand that. Some of you are in marriages that uh, are maybe, you, you know, maybe they're going great. Maybe they're, they're not going so well. These principles are valuable for whatever stage you're in. Um, and um, <clears throat> let me just head off at the pass one potential error. Um, some of you eternal optimists who are still single out there may be thinking, you know, he's talking about pain and difficult marriages, but, you know, he doesn't understand. If you just find the one, right? Like if I find that one person, then I know that everything will be okay. I'm just searching for, for the perfect person for me, the right personality match, you know, the, the one who understands me. Um, and let me just say, there is no such thing as the one. I love this quote. It's in your bulletins from Stanley Hauerwas. Um, I'm going to read it if you want to Look, look in your bulletins. You can follow along with me. He says, The assumption today is that there's someone just right for you to marry. And if you look hard enough, you will find that right person. This fails to appreciate a simple fact, that you always marry the wrong person. We never truly know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or if you do marry the right person, just give it time and they'll change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person ourselves, even after we have entered into it. That means the primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you often find yourself married. There is no such thing as the one, but this sermon is for everyone, wherever you are, so that you can learn to be the right kind of partner in marriage, um, and so that you can learn to have relationships that, that honor God. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Paul was, was up against some serious challenges, both in the churches that he was working with and in the culture around him. Um, so 
that's one of the reasons that I think this passage is so applicable to us uh, for learning about marriage today. Um, Paul was a guy who, uh, if you don't know, he, he, he was a church planter. He went around starting churches, and he, he worked the entire Roman Empire. So here was a guy who, who traveled widely and saw lots of marriages, lots of people in different situations with different pain, different conflict, and he was in it with them. He knew what was going on. He was, he was aware of it, and we see that come through in his letters. Let me give you just a few instances, some of the, the, the difficulties of marriage that he knew about. In his letter to the Corinthian church, he spoke to couples who were having um, intimacy problems. And he he gave advice on that. And in that same letter, he mentions another marriage where one of the partners is committing adultery. It's publicly known. And this guy's boasting about it. He's boasting about it in front of the whole church. In this letter to the Colossians, what SJ just read to us, he speaks to husbands and he tells them not to be harsh with their wives. Paul knew what husbands were capable of. He knew the violence and the rage that sometimes happens behind closed doors, right? Like we're all here and we put on our, our you know, our happy faces. How you doing? Good. How you doing? Good. Um, but behind closed doors, different things happen. And Paul was aware of that. He saw it in the churches. He talked to husbands and wives who were hurting sometimes, oftentimes. He was a pastor who, who worked in churches across the entire empire. And I, me- I mention this because Paul knew how painful um, the experiences of marriage could be. He had extensive uh, experience counseling couples. But the culture around Paul was also quite evil. Let me give you just one example. Um, Nero, who was the emperor at the time that Paul was writing this letter, uh, he-, he was... Um, Nero divorced his, his wife, Octavia, on false charges of adultery, right? Trumped up charges. And then he moves on to this next lady, Papea, marries her in like less than two weeks. And listen, listen so right, you think, oh, you know, oh, there's true love. That's going to last this time. Um, the Roman historian Suetonius records this about Nero. He says, though Nero doted on Papea, his second wife, he kicked her to death while she was pregnant and feeling very ill because she dared complain that he came home late from the races. And no legal action was taken against Nero. Here's this public figure who murders his wife, and, and nobody does anything. This is the culture that Paul lived in. Marriages were just as bad back then as they are now, because again, the problem's not outside of us. It's not, oh, the culture's crumbling, it's falling apart. The problem is inside of us. The problem is each one of us. It's, it's the sin inside of us. It's the, 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 the brokenness that causes us to want and want and want for ourselves. It motivates us and drives us to, to hurt each other, ultimately. There's nothing that we deal with that Paul didn't deal with. He knew the dirty details of marriages. And he knew what was going on behind uh, closed doors. Let's take a look at our passage now um, that we just read a moment ago. In verses 18 and 19, the very last two verses there, Paul gives specific instructions to husbands and to wives. Uh, in verse 18, he speaks to wives and he tells them to submit to their husbands. This is very unpalatable in our culture. I understand that. Um, let me just say uh, at, this, at the outset, submission does not mean everything that everyone has ever said about it. 
Um, if you've been with us in this sermon series, you know, we've talked a little bit about submission. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that for the other s- sermons. You can pick them up there in Ephesians 5. Um, let me just say, it does mean that wives should follow their husbands and respect them as leader. Um, but also note, especially husbands, men, it does not say, husbands, make your wives submit. Right? That would be a different command. And that's not what Paul says here. He's speaking to wives in that passage. Um, That's verse 18. Verse 19, he speaks to husbands and he tells them two things. One, husbands, love your wives. Two, do not be harsh with them. Um, Don't be drawn away from your wife, right? Love her. Don't let anything stand between you. A hobby, another individual, your job, something that, that draws your affection away from her. Love your wives, husbands, and don't be harsh with them. Paul identifies this common sin of husbands. They lack gentleness with their wives. So he has very specific uh, things that he's teaching the, the husbands and wives here. Um, but these specific instructions are, are built on verses 12 through 17, those pre- preceding verses that we read. Um, and really, the core of those verses is one verse in particular, verse 14. Uh, I'm going to read it. Verse 14, the core of, of, of everything that Paul's saying is summed up in this verse. He says, Above all these... Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the core of what Paul is teaching here. But this doesn't mean that commands, specific commands, are unnecessary because love is always expressed in concrete ways. If the only thing necessary for Paul to say was to remind people, put on love, be more loving. He wouldn't have had to write the rest of this letter, right? It's like a one-verse letter. Hey, Colossians, you know, grace and peace in Christ. Put on love. See you soon. But he did write more commands because specific commands are necessary. Our love needs structure. Love means joyfully doing more than we have to, though. So even though we need these commands, we need these rules, Love goes beyond specific commands. It's never less than them, but it goes beyond them. Love motivates us not just to say, what's my duty? But to say, how can I serve you? How can I, how can I do what's best for you? So commands are necessary, but love always goes beyond them. Um, we're going to look at three specific commands from this passage today. Um, and those three commands are, one, forgive as you've been forgiven. Two, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And three, humbly Accept correction. So let's look at that first one. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Look at verse uh, 13. If you have your Bibles open there, it says that uh, Paul says that they should be bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Notice how Paul explains that. Um, He says, if you have a complaint against someone else, then you should forgive them. Isn't that interesting? Um, the, the only condition necessary for forgiving someone is if you have a complaint against them. Right? Consider what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you have a complaint against someone and they've said sorry to you, then forgive them. He doesn't say, if you have a complaint against someone and it was like a little thing that they did, did to you, then go ahead and forgive them. He says, if you have a complaint against somebody, you need to deal with that and you need to forgive them. That this, this is at the core of what makes marriages and relationships work. is forgiving when you've been wronged. 
Because these little wrongs build up so fast into a list. And they cause emotional death in marriages. That kind of silence that permeates the broken marriage. The tension where there's no atmosphere of, of, of freedom to speak. But notice the, the basis that Paul uh, builds all this on. He, he doesn't say, uh, right, like I said, he doesn't say, uh, you know, if someone sinned against you in these ways and give a list of sins that you need to forgive for. He just says, forgive them. And the basis for all this is forgive just as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. He, he points them back to the gospel. He reminds them of what God has done for everyone who's a follower of Jesus. God has forgiven you entirely. All your rebellion, your sins, all those hurtful words that you've spoken, the evil thoughts, the bad decisions, gone. Gone. God's not keeping a list of those against you. All that self-centeredness is forgiven. Now, if you're not a Christian, please listen closely because this is what makes us tick. This is, this is the heart of the Christian message. We call it the gospel, and it's good news. It's, uh, it's an invitation to anyone who, who will humble themselves to believe in Jesus. This is it. Paul's pointing them back to this. He says, uh, God created the entire world. This is what he's reminding them of. But we rebelled. All people have rebelled. The reason that the world is not as good as it should be is because we've broken it by our sin. Jesus was always God, and he was happy with the Father. They were a perfect unity. And yet, in his love for us, he became one of us. He became a person just like us. He humbled himself to take our our punishment for us. He lived a perfect life, and he died in our place on the cross. Uh, The crucifixion was not a, a tragic accident. It was not a mistake. It was part of God's plan to take the punishment that we deserve so that Jesus would suffer in our place. And Paul's reminding them, Jesus suffered in your place. And if you believe in him, if you believe in his death and resurrection for you, God's forgiven you. Forgive just as God has forgiven you. No sins are are considered too bad to be forgivable by Jesus' crucifixion. So this is good news. But it's easier said than done. It's easy to say, forgive if you have a, a, a problem with somebody, <laughs> right? But say you, you reach that point where you're willing to forgive someone who's done a wrong to you. I mean, if you're like me, it's so common that the next day or the next hour, that bitterness springs back up. You remember the wrong that was done to you. And, and you have to work through that forgiveness again. What this verse is reminding us of is to stop focusing on the wrong that was done to us and focus on God's forgiveness of us. When we, when we, are, when we look at, at our own wrongs and at the great love that God has shown us by sending his son to die for us, it gives us perspective. And we're able to step back and keep, keep all these things in order. I, I am much worse, much worse than anything that's ever been done to me. God forgave me. His own son. I mean, the, the, the cross is a reminder. You're not that good. You're, you, you, you are not as good as you think you are because somebody had to die for your sins. Somebody had to die for what you've done. And when you focus on God's love, 
and how much he's forgiven you, then you gain perspective. And you can show love just as you've been loved. That's one of the, the main steps to your best marriage now. It's not easy. It's not natural. But by God's grace, it happens inside Christians because God's spirit is in us, helping us to forgive, reminding us of the forgiveness that we've received. And this is the way that we have those kind of marriages, right? Some of you grew up in in the opposite of this. The marriage, like I mentioned just a second ago, where there's just tension. The parents don't speak. There's there's no communication. You can't have... Uh, you, you can't have a conversation because there's, there's, just, there's, there's, there's painful silence at the dinner table. That's, the, that's what we're trying to avoid because every little sin can just add to the list that creates that broken relationship. But if you forgive as you've been forgiven in this ongoing process, looking back to Jesus, looking back to what God's done for you and gaining that perspective, then you can move forward step by step, day by day, and have a relationship where there's freedom. Freedom to speak to one another. So that's the first thing. Forgive as you've been forgiven. The second command that Paul gives is uh, to let the word of Christ dwell in you. Look at verse 16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. What is the word of Christ? Well, the word of Christ is the message about Jesus, the Christ. Um, I mean, you know, we we say this sometimes here, but the entire Old Testament is really uh, the message about Jesus. It's looking forward to Jesus. So in some sense, the Old Testament is the word of Christ. It's the word about Christ. And the entire New Testament, kind of the, the, the next part in our Bibles, is built on the foundation of Jesus, is people who had a radical experience with Jesus and then wrote, wrote about it and shared it with others. So the word of Christ is what we have in the Bible, the Old and New Testament. Um, but this means uh, not just that we know the Bible, but that it lives inside of us. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. It's, like, it's as if it lives in us like a house, uh, like, like uh, someone living in a house. We're the house for the scripture. And, and as we memorize it, and as we get to know it better, it influences our thoughts. It influences our decisions and the way that we treat one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that it's, it's overflowing in you. Um, I mean, you can't know God without, without his word being in you. God doesn't reveal himself to us apart from uh, his word, his son, Jesus, who comes to us through the scriptures. Obviously, God works in us through his spirit, but the way that his spirit works in us is specifically through the word of God. The word of Christ must dwell in you richly, and that's how God works in us to introduce us to new things about himself. It's through the scripture. Um, I think when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, he means at least two things. We have to have a balance of two parts of what the Bible is. The Bible is both promises and commands. Promises and commands. It's easy for us to think that the commands are all Old Testament, right? Like if you know a little bit about your Bible, you know, the Jews had the law, Moses gave them the law. And when Jesus came, that was kind of like done away with, you know, like nobody here has to avoid eating pork. Um, you know, you don't, you don't have to not work on Sundays or anything like that. So we're not under the law. But at the same time, we're still called 
to obey the commands of God. This is, I mean, this is kind of a different concept sometimes for some of us because we tend to think of law in the Old Testament. But we still live under some sort of law. Listen to this. This is from Jesus uh, in Matthew 28. It says, Jesus came and said to them, to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. These are like his parting words to the disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus, parting words to the disciples, teach them to obey what I've commanded you. Jesus gave commandments. Part of what we have to do, part of having the word of Christ dwelling in us richly is knowing what the commands of God are, knowing how we structure our love, right? I said the core of Paul's teaching is love, but love always has uh, concrete ways that it's lived out. And part of that structure is the commands of God. But that's incomplete. The, the word of Christ cannot dwell in you richly if all you have is commands. You must also have the promises. And the promises of God are what, 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 what fuel us. It's what gives us joy. Promises like this one from John chapter 6. Again, this is Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus will not cast out those who come to him, no matter how um, broken we are. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's a promise of Jesus specifically for you if you're a Christian. Jesus has promised, I will raise you up on the last day. I will not cast you out. I will give you life that lasts forever. You will dwell with me and the Father in our eternal kingdom. But there will be no more sin. The promises of Christ must must dwell in us richly as well. And as we keep those two in balance, the promises of God and the commands The word of Christ dwells in us richly. It motivates us. It changes us. It creates marriages where where people know that that, that they must be loving. But they also have the power to love because they remember God's love for them. They remember the promises of God. So that's the second thing that that we see here. Treasure God's word. Let it dwell richly in you. And the third thing we see is this, that we should humbly accept correction. Humbly accept correction. Look back at verse 16 again. I'm going to read it from the beginning. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I want to focus on that kind of that central phrase there, that, that we should be teaching and admonishing one another. Admonishing means to correct. Um, we're offering correction to each other. That's, that's a picture of what the church should look like and what marriages should look like as well. It's kind of microcosms of the, within the church. Um, so what's implied by that? We should be teaching and admonishing one another. At least two things. First, Christians should correct one another. And secondly, Christians should accept correction from each other. Right? I mean, those two things have to be there if, if there's admonishing and correction going on. But um, this doesn't always happen. 
even in the church. It doesn't always happen in marriages where correction is given and accepted, right? You know this as well as I do. Somebody comes to you and corrects you, and if your reaction is, is like, uh, if it's like all of ours, then you say, well, what about you? Who are you to point out, you know, what's wrong in my life? You've got this whole array of things that's broken in your life. You don't have any right to speak to me. But I don't think that's the attitude of someone who has the word of Christ dwelling richly in them. Let me remind you, the promises of Christ are only for sinners. It's only for people who recognize their own brokenness. The promises, I mean, God didn't come looking for like perfect people. If he did, right, uh, ultimate fail. Uh, that's, that's not what he found. We come to church not because we're good, but because we need help. Because we recognize that we're broken. And we come to Jesus because, because we recognize our sin. If you recognize your sin, then you recognize that you need correction. And what we need to do is learn to humbly accept that correction when it comes. I, I love what, what one pastor said, Josh Harris. He said, if we wait for perfect people to show up to point out our errors and our flaws, we will die as fools. One of the reasons we don't accept correction is because we, 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 we nitpick in other people's lives. We find what's wrong with them. We find ways to ignore their correction. Um, but, Humbly accepting correction means that we should accept correction even if it's not accurate in every detail. We should accept correction even if it's not done gently. Right? That's, that's a common reason that we sometimes ignore what people say to us. And we should accept correction even if the timing is wrong. Even if the timing is wrong. We can always find an excuse for ignoring correction but even if only one-tenth of the correction you receive is accurate, if you accept it, you can grow from it. God will be at work in your life through his spirit, teaching you and building you up so that you have the kind of marriage where there's freedom to, to, to speak to one another, where your spouse or, or can come to you and say, hey, listen, you know, this thing that you did, um, I, can we do that differently next time? Or that hurt me, um, where there's an atmosphere of open communication where wives don't have to think, oh, gosh, if I, if I correct him, he's going to blow up on me. Husbands don't have to say, well, I can't really you know, point that out to her because she'll just stonewall, she'll shut down. But where we have th- the ability to communicate with one another, a healthy relationship needs that communication and you need to humbly accept correction when it comes to you. I hope we can build marriages where people, where, where each spouse feels free to gently correct. And again, this begins outside of marriage. This begins where we're correcting one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you're in a fight club. If you're not familiar with a fight club, that's just the name for uh, kind of small groups where we get together as, uh, by, as men and women. And, um, you know, we basically just as brothers correcting brothers, sisters correcting sisters. And, and we just, we work together. And we gently correct, teaching and admonishing one another. Um, and, and as you grow in those things before you're married, it will, it will have a lasting impact for your marriages. So husbands, will you accept your wife's correction even if it isn't 100% accurate? Wives, will you accept your husband's correction even if it's do- not done perfectly uh, 
even if it's not as gentle as it should be. This isn't easy. We're not looking for correction. But better marriages are possible by the work of God in us. And the way we achieve this is by forgiving as we've been forgiven. It's by the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. And it's by humbly accepting correction. When we do these things, we can have a marriage that's full of love, that honors God, and that's joyful. (laughs) Where you're happy to be with the one who you're connected to, who you're committed to. Um, In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we'll put up some reflection questions. Um, The reflection questions are just an opportunity for you to think through and apply some of the things that we've just uh, seen in God's word here. Um, And then after the reflection questions, uh, we're going to take offering. Uh, Our offering is a time for members and regular attenders to give uh, financially to support the work that God's doing here through Trailhead. Um, if you're not a member or a regular attender, I'd invite you to uh, just, uh, we, we're not, you're not obligated to give. Please don't feel obligated. What we would love for you to do is to fill out the, the card that's in the middle of your bulletin, just a little information about yourself so we can follow up with you, um, know that you were here, and uh, stay in contact, hopefully. Um, and then after our, our time of offering, we're going to take uh, communion together. So let me take a minute and just pray for us. Um, Father, we, uh, we need you, and we know that you are uh, merciful to us, to broken people like us, people with broken marriages, and um, uh, people who honestly, Lord, uh, have come and probably even just been in a conflict on the way in this morning in the car uh, or last night. Um, you know I am uh, imperfect, Lord, and full of sin. I pray that you'd help us to... Um, to have marriages that are an encouragement to the people around us, marriages that are a joy to be involved in. Um, I pray that you would uh, help us to honor you um, in the community around us so that people would uh, see the way that you're at work in us, uh, taking imperfect people and uh, restoring us to to put us in in relationships that honor you and that are a joy to be a part of. Um, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.